Flip to Psalm 6. That is where we are today in our uh, series of Summer of Psalms. If we've not met yet, there's a couple new faces. Uh, my name's Chris. I'm the associate pastor here, one of the pastors. Well, uh, been here for a little while now, but I'd be happy to meet you if uh, we're able to do so. And if you're new, you're invited to the house as well, so come on out. Uh, but Psalm 6. Uh, made me think of one of uh, my favorite movies, and Pastor Tom always brings up C.S. Lewis, so I'm going to keep bringing up J.R. Tolkien and The Lord of the Rings, and uh, I, I had to go back. What? The Lord of the Rings? I love it. One of my favorite moments is uh, right in the beginning when uh, Gandalf arrives in the Fellowship of the Ring to see Bilbo at his birthday party, and he uses the ring to make his disappearance as a party trick. And back home, uh, as he runs back before he leaves forever, uh, Gandalf beats him there. And Gandalf warns Bilbo about these mysterious rings that have such power. And as he begins to suggest that he leave this ring back home before he leaves for good to give it to Frodo, Bilbo begins to get overly aggressive and angry and begins to blame shift and accuse Gandalf of wanting the ring for himself. And this is where uh, Gandalf then begins to, or at least appears to grow in size physically, and the lights dim, and his voice begins to boom. And he says, Bilbo Baggins, do not take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. I am not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. And as he says that final line, all the lights come back up, his voice returns to normal, and he almost smiles. And to what at once was a, a, an aggressive Bilbo, the little hobbit, he begins to tear up. He almost looks afraid of Gandalf, and he runs into his arms and gives them this big embrace because of the love that he knows Gandalf has for him. And I believe we're going to see something like that from Psalm 6. That in our relationship with God, that the loving Father, that He does what is absolutely best and right for us in all times, including the discipline that He may have us under. And so if you would uh, turn to Psalm 6, and then I'll read that and we'll pray and get into it. Psalm 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But for you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for, your, for the sake of your steadfast love. For in the death there is no remem remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled, and they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Would you pray with me again? 
God, we thank you for this moment. Thank you for the entire collection of Psalms, especially Psalm 6 today. I'd ask that you would help us learn, help me speak clearly, help bend us to your will and to your righteousness that we would follow you with our hearts, that would be open with you, that we would submit to you and that we would just love you. We thank you for your son and his work in our lives. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the way that you move within us, that you carry and you keep us. We pray this in the Son's name. Amen. Well, this has been titled or labeled a Psalm of David. That was done later on. David's found himself in a bit of trouble here with the Lord. Though he's not, he doesn't confess any specific sin or ailment or specific enemy. He's clearly troubled about something. Specifically, it seems that David's processing the silence of the Lord in his life as a discipline. We see here that he calls out to God in his trouble. Not only does he call out to God, if you ever see uh, Lord, like we do here in uh, Psalm 6, all capitals, L-O-R-D, that is an old uh, Jewish substitution for the name Yahweh, the personal name of God. Not God King, but God my personal Father. And the number of times that he uses this, he's personally calling out to God for help. He begs for graciousness, that the Lord would not linger on in distance, and that he, he calls to God to save him from perils, and that David's enemies would be put to shame. But specifically here, uh, to begin in verses 1 through 3, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? And I think most of us can probably remember a time when we have felt this way or called out in this way, when either our sin made us feel like there's this massive gap in between us and God, or if for some other reason we feel as though God has abandoned us. And I don't think American Christianity has prepared us for that feeling. We're often told that Jesus is our homeboy and wants to just hang out and be our buddy, that he never wants us to feel bad and would certainly never make us feel like we're a bad child who is in need of discipline. And I think every parent in this room, whether the best parent that's ever been born or the most lacking parent, has, we've all felt the pain of having to d discipline our children if we have them. And, and I find that even I do this poorly, even as though I should be great at this. I do this poorly. So many times in discipline, it's a snap reaction out of anger or irritation. And it's not to gr help the child grow in character, it's to just stop doing that annoying thing in this moment because it irritates me. And it's cold and it can be harsh. In the most stressed and agitated times, it's just to get them to stop doing what they're doing in that moment. But that's not how the Father, God the Father, disciplines us, his children. God disciplines those he loves so that they will be more like him. They will reflect his son more and more, that they would glorify him with our lives, that by being 
holy and in good relation to him, he would bend us to his will to be more like him. And I was thinking about this just this morning, and uh, there was a church I was in in college, and I'm sad and glad that I was in this church because I learned a lot of what not to do because of this. And I remember that they would always encourage confession of sin. And that's not bad. But they would encourage it so they could use those things and be able to control you and get you into situations that they could better use you. They would use information against you to get something that they needed to accomplish. And I remember confessing once, and it seemed like everyone I was close to just right after that just disappeared. There's only so many. It was this, something the size of this church. And later I found out that the pastor told the, the young circle that we were all in to well, stay away until he fixes himself because you, know, you can't be around people like that. And that's super, super great for uh, extroverts. We just fix ourselves right away. And then he told me that also God would have to stay away for a little while because God can't be around sinners. And so don't be surprised if he's just, he just disappears. Not because I needed to have been driven to repentance, because that, that was already accomplished. But it was because uh, I had felt the, the weight of the Lord, and I'd had spit out my sin in confession because of it, but it was because God just couldn't be around me when I had sinned, even though the doctrine of the Holy Spirit tells us that we're the new temple, and he lives inside us always. It was a cruel punishment doled out by the pastor. And ironically enough, it was a church named Grace Church. And this wasn't handed to me so that I would be more, become more Christ-like. It was so that he could get the extrovert. And I, I don't truly think with all the introverts in the church, he could slowly push the extrovert out. And so it begs the question, why would God discipline us, his children, Is it because he can't be around sinful people, so just go fix yourself, and then I can come back in the room when the sin's cleared out? Well, the writer of Hebrews helps us understand why the Lord would discipline us. If you'd flip to Hebrews 12, chapter 12, verses 3 to 11. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostilities against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let me just read that verse again. It's talking about Jesus here. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin... You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have, you, uh, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, when challenged. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises everyone whom he receives It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons, believers. Besides this, 
We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It reminded me of the time I worked on a horse ranch, and I was mowing, and I was backing up with my push mower, and I ran right, back of my head, right into the electric fence. It was not off. (laughs) Guess how many times I ran into that fence? One time. The truth is that God does discipline us, those in his church, because he loves us. He's keeping us from something. He cares for us. He lifts us up in times of trouble. He answers prayers. The spirit moves within us to feel joy and peace, yet God disciplines us in our sin as well. He allows us to feel shame and guilt in the decisions we make, but he does this because of his deep abiding love for us, to bring us back to the grace that he's given us. He does it because we are his children and he loves us perfectly. His discipline isn't snappy and cold like mine is. It's never uncalculated and unearned. It is always for our good. Always. My second point is from verses 4 through 7. Let's read them again. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there's no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief, and it grows weak because of all my foes. I think it's an interesting passage. It doesn't feel good. We don't go, yes and amen, David. Let's go charge up the hill. David's uh, begging the Lord to finish his disciplining of him, to not let it go any longer, to not stay quiet while the enemies move in. And then he cries out for salvation from his iniquities. He says that God is the only one who can save him based on his own steadfast love, that from the grave no one cries out, that David cries in his bed so that his bed is soaked with tears. David pleads in prayer to God to rescue him. We don't know specifically which enemies are coming after him, if it is within his house or without, or what David is feeling punishment for, but he turns his mind to the Lord for salvation. And I wonder where we turn to in the dark moments of our lives. Difficulties with family or sickness whatever we're dealing with, how often we make sure our phone is within arm's reach at all times, myself included, how quickly we're scrolling through something without realizing we're scrolling, like an automatic thumb scroller, we just go to it. How good we've gotten 
at hiding from the discipline of the Lord by distracting ourselves from the pain or silence because we're afraid to draw near to Christ in those moments. There's good news in Jesus, right? Jesus addressed the hurting Christian regarding this. Jesus could have said, well, I'm here to ignore you and to be harsh with you. I'm Jesus. I can do whatever I want. But he didn't. He said this in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And just in case you forgot, Jesus is God. The beauty of the gospel for those who have been revealed of it is that Jesus promises that promise. That he's gentle and lowly and gracious. That he gives us rest. That he gives us a new yoke under which he will teach us the truths of scripture and who God is and how we may now live under righteousness. That he is gentle and lowly. He's not distant and prideful and haughty where our weary and anxious souls may find rest. We've all been in this place of David, either when we're, we were just turning to Jesus and we're seeing our sin and the weight of our sin and the nastiness of our sin for the very first time, but in that immediate uh, plowing of grace through our lives, it's so easy to just turn to Jesus. But then we're Christians for a while and we go, gee, I thought I'd stop doing stupid things eventually. And I just don't seem to be able to stop. And then in those dark moments, when we, sh- we know we shouldn't be doing things, but we do the things we hate, boom, straight to the phone, straight to the distraction, whatever we're doing. It's been famously said, you're not David. And in this specific case, we don't need to be. It's true. We do not need to be left alone in spiritual darkness ever again because Jesus is continually waiting to comfort us and to bring us before the Father in forgiveness and righteousness. And we need to know that the gospel has brought us near to the Father. Not away, not in distance, not for control or anything like that. We're no longer enemies who need to cower in fear, but who with confidence may confess, repent, and embrace Jesus. Which brings me to my third point from uh, verses 8 through 10. The point that God makes his enemies his bride. Verse 8, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. I should say amen to that. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled, and they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Here David turns this psalm to expressing his trust in the Lord and then praying against his enemies. And it seems that the Lord is using David's enemies to press against him to make him feel the heat of this discipline. And it appears to have worked. Whether from within or without, the Lord used these people to apply this pressure to wake him up 
and to point him back to himself. And I think the beauty of Christ reminds us that the enemies of God are no, no longer under, uh, only under destruction and curses. Yes, God still has enemies upon this earth, but Jesus has done something to alter the future of his enemies. No longer are we called to destruction upon them. No, we are called by Christ to call something else for them. And the way that God deals with his enemies are now twofold. There is a future of destruction for some enemies. It still exists. He'll send them off and send them away for all eternity. But because of the work of Christ on the cross, he now defeats some of his enemies by making them no longer his enemy. Not by destroying them, but by marrying them, by caring for them, by bringing them under the fold like a baby chick under the chickens, protects them and brings them in. This is what, what Paul means when he writes Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 about enemies. And you, O Christian, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You were once his enemy, a rejecter of Jesus Christ, and then he changed your heart so that you would be a lover of Christ, so that you would love him instead of hate him. That's why we see Jesus in Matthew 5, 43 through 48, this call, this different call from curse the enemy to this. You've heard it, it was said, you shall love your neighbor and then hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in, in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do, you not, even, do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus commands that we pray for our enemies so that they would come to the Lord and no longer be enemies. And whether that may be difficult to grasp or accept, the same thing happened for you. I guarantee you, before you were saved, someone was praying for you that God would no longer let you linger in sin, but would rescue you from the depths of hell and put you in the place of safety and righteousness forevermore. And now we are called to do the same. The love of the Father has been poured out completely through His Son, Jesus Christ, that the enemies may become His bride. And that good father perfectly disciplines his children so that through the word and prayer we may be sanctified to be more and more like Jesus. And the beauty of this psalm is, is the way that these three sections all work together to point to Jesus through suffering in the writings of David. If you're hurting today, 
Jesus is waiting for you as the one who heals. If you're feeling the discipline of the Lord over your sin, Jesus is waiting to embrace you and heal you through your confession. Jesus was the balm that David was looking for in this passage. Jesus is who he was looking for. The perfect king that represented that was represented imperfectly by David, the same king, prophet and priest that we now have as a perfect husband and friend and God. He's who we're able to go to in all things. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for even just looking into our pasts, uh, the way that you have, uh, that we can see, we can identify the way that you have disciplined us in different times in our life to make us who we are today. I'm sure I'm not the only one who looks back 10 years ago and goes, oof, I'd never be friends with that guy. I'd probably never even pray for him. I'd, I'd just disdain him so much. And thinking about that, I, I'm thankful to you for the way that you change us through your son, the way that you change our heart from stone to flesh, the way that you set us on a course of sanctification to grow us more like you, those of us who just do nothing but sin and contribute to the cross, you continue to change to be more like you. And thank you for that. Thank you for that. Help us now respond to these things and joy and gladness and singing and fellowship. We love you, we thank you, and we confess that you were Lord and God and that you've been raised from the dead. We thank you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.